It's the first day of a new year of our salvation, 2008. And this is Father Z with another podcast. In the traditional calendar, we celebrate today the octave of Christmas with its strong association with the mystery of Christ's circumcision, the first time our Lord shed his blood for us. And in the post-conciliar calendar, today is the solemnity of Mary, the mother of God. And so we also begin today the month named after the Roman god Janus, or Janus in Latin. I'll talk about Janus a little later. But first, let's hear from St. Athanasius of Alexandria, who died long ago in the year of our salvation, 373. Athanasius is here to tell us about Mary and her role in our salvation. Then later in the podcast, we'll look back, backwards at the writings of two old warriors of the post-conciliar liturgical wars, two forward-looking men to great defenders of the Roman tradition, and especially of ad orientum worship for Holy Mass. And I mean Monsignor Klaus Gamber and Monsignor Richard Schuler. guest today, St. Athanasius, who was born in Alexandria around 295 and died in 373. Athanasius was probably born to Greek-speaking parents in Alexandria in Egypt, and he converted to Christianity when he was in his early manhood. Uh, he was very well educated in philosophy and oratory, and after his ordination as a deacon, he went to the Council of Nicaea with his bishop. And uh, there, under the influence of Nicaea, uh, he became a very strong anti-Arian. Now remember that the Arians were the ones who said that only the Father was God, and that Christ uh, though very close to God, uh, had really uh, at one point never existed, and therefore he was a creature. He was very close to God, but he was a creature. In other words, there was a time when Christ was not. Instead, the supporters of the Nicene faith knew that uh, Christ uh, and the Father are both God, and uh, their great slogan was, there was never a time when he was not. And Athanasius embraced this Nicene faith and became a strong anti-Arian and fought against those who said that Christ was not God. Now when Athanasius became bishop in 328, there was some strife over his election, but he was backed by the Emperor Constantine. But of course Constantine died and his support faded away and there began a series of exiles and persecutions uh, mainly because of his uh, 
powerful battle that he waged against the heresy of the Arians. And so this lion of a bishop was driven from pillar to post, as it were. But eventually uh, he was able to return to Alexandria, uh, and uh, where he died as bishop in 373. Well, let's hear a little bit of uh, Athanasius' letter to Epictetus of Corinth, who, like Athanasius, fought against the Arians. This is the selection from the Office of Readings in the Liturgy of the Hours for today, the uh, New Year's Day, January 1st, the Solemnity of Mary, Mother of God. Now, this letter of Athanasius to Epictetus is really kind of a pressy of Christological errors of his day. And uh, as you listen to this little selection, listen especially to uh, how Athanasius takes aim at those who said that Christ only seems to have a human body. Uh, he only appears to be human. You see, there were some who fell into heresy because they wanted to defend the divinity of God from being tainted by matter, by human being, human nature. And uh, so for them, Christ only seemed to have a human body. And so we call these uh, heretics, and those like them, docetists. It comes from the Greek word uh, for to seem, dokein. And also listen to how Athanasius uh, goes after those who thought that Christ didn't have a real human soul. You see, Athanasius knows that Christ has to be truly human. He has to have a real body and a real soul in order for man to be saved. Both the body dimension and the, and the spiritual dimension of man has to be taken up by Christ. Athanasius then goes on to describe the role of Mary in our salvation. Christ had to be born of a woman so that he would have a true human nature. But uh, taking a human nature in such a way that the divinity of Christ was not diminished. So let's listen to uh, Athanasius writing to Epictetus of Corinth, uh, two great anti-Arians, uh, talking about how we came to be saved. Spermatos gar Abraham epilambanetai hos epen ho apostolos hoten ho fele katapanta tois adalfois homoetenai 
kai laben homoion humin soma. Dia tutor gun kai hupeketai adelfos he Maria. The apostle tells us the word took to himself the sons of Abraham and so had to be like his brothers in all things. He had then to take a body like ours. This explains the fact of Mary's presence. She is to provide him with a body of his own to be offered for our sake. Scripture records her giving birth and says she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Her breasts which fed him were called blessed. Sacrifice was offered because the child was her firstborn. Gabriel used careful and prudent language when he announced his birth. He did not speak of what will be born in you to avoid the impression that a body would be introduced into her womb from outside. She spoke of what will be born from you so that we might know by faith that her child originated within her and from her. By taking our nature and offering it in sacrifice, the word was to destroy it completely, and then invest it with his own nature, and so prompt the apostle to say, This corruptible body must put on incorruption, this mortal body must put on immortality. This was not done in outward show only, as some have imagined. This is not so. Our Savior truly became man, and from this has followed the salvation of man as a whole. Our salvation is in no way fictitious, nor does it apply only to the body. The salvation of the whole man, that is, of soul and body, has really been achieved in the Word Himself. What was born of Mary was therefore human by nature, in accordance with the inspired scriptures, and the body of the Lord was a true body. It was a true body because it was the same as ours. Mary, you see, is our sister, for we are all born from Adam. The words of St. John, The Word was made flesh, bear the same meaning as we may see from a similar turn of phrase in St. Paul. Christ was made a curse for our sake. Man's body has acquired something great through its communion and union with the Word. From being mortal, it has been made immortal. Though it was a living body, it has become a spiritual one. Though it was made from the earth, it has passed through the gates of heaven. Even when the Word takes a body from Mary, the Trinity remains a Trinity, with neither increase nor decrease. It is forever perfect. In the Trinity we acknowledge one Godhead, and thus one God, the Father of the Word, is proclaimed in the Church. Cae en triadi mia teotes ginosgetai, cae hutos en te ecclesia es teos kerusetai, ho tu logu pater.
That was St. Athanasius writing to Epictetus of Corinth. Uh, one great anti-Arian writing to another. Remember, the Arians did not believe that Christ was truly God. And so at the end of this little excerpt we hear, uh, Athanasius affirms a trinity. But notice how Athanasius is very precise about the language of how Christ was born. He wants to defend the teaching that Christ is truly human, with a truly human body, and not just uh, in the appearance of a human man. This is why he talks about Christ being born from Mary, and not just in Mary. Now remember that in some uh, apocryphal writings, there are apocryphal nativity stories that describe Christ as being born as if he were like a ray of light coming forth from Mary, as if he didn't have a real human body. So Athanasius clarifies that the one born from Mary was truly human, while at the same time he is truly God, part of the Trinity. And in the next century, the relationship of the two natures of Christ would become uh, more clearly thought through, uh, especially at the time of the Council of Ephesus in 431, which dealt with Nestorianism, the two natures of Christ. And it was at Ephesus that Mary was called Theotokos, the God-bearer, because she bore and gave birth to Christ, who is both God and man. And uh, even greater clarity than would come 20 years later at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, uh, especially under the influence of Pope Leo the Great. Today is the first day of a new year of our salvation in the Julio-Gregorian calendar. January is the appropriate name for this month. The word Janus in Latin means doorstep or threshold. It is that mysterious place which is both backward and forward, both inward and outward at the same time. And so the Roman god Janus, or Janus, had two faces, an old face looking back and a young one looking forward. And the double doors of the temple of Janus in the Roman Forum were closed only in the time when the Roman people were not at war. And so Caesar Octavius, who was called Augustus, managed to close the temple doors when the whole empire was at peace. And we hear how he talks about that in the his uh, great inscription on the Arapachis of Augustus, which is still in Rome, you see in bronze letters set into the marble wall, the long text of the race gestae, and uh, where Octavius talks about how he was able to close the temple doors and the entire world was at peace. And we hear about that uh, about the peace of the whole Roman Empire. We hear about that during the reading of the Martyrology, which is probably still ringing in our ears uh, from Midnight Mass of Christmas. Let's hear, let's hear it both Latin and in English. 
Octavo Calendas Januarii Anno a creatione mundi, quando in principio Deus creavit celum et terram, quinquies millesimo, centesimo, nonagesimo, nono. A diluvio vero, anno bis millesimo, nongentesimo, quinquagesimo septimo. A nativitate abrahe, anno bis millesimo, quinto decimo. A Moise et egressu popoli Israel de Egipto, anno millesimo, quingentesimo decimo. Ab unctione David in regem, anno millesimo, trigesimo secundo. Hebdomada sexagesima, quinta juxta Danielis profeziam. Olimpiade centesima, nongentesima quarta. Ab urbe condita anno septingentesimo quinquagesimo secundo, anno imperii Octaviani Augusti quadragesimo secundo. Toto urbe in pace composito, sexta mundi etate, Jesus Christus, eternus Deus, eternique patris filius, mundum volens adventu suo piissimo consecrare, De Spiritu Sancto Conceptus, novemque postconceptionem de cursus mensibus, in Bethlehem, Jude, nascitur ex Maria Virgine, factus homo, nativitas Domini nostri Jesu Christi, secundum carnem. The eighth of the calends of January. The year from the creation of the world, when in the beginning God created heaven and earth, 5,199. From the deluge, the year 2,957. From the birth of Abraham, the year 2,015. From Moses and the going out of the people of Israel from Egypt, the year 1,510. From David's being anointed king, the year 1,032 in the sixty-fifth week according to the prophecy of Daniel, in the one hundred and ninety-fourth Olympian, from the building of the city of Rome, the year seven hundred and fifty-two, in the forty-second year of the reign of Octavian Augustus, the whole world being in peace in the sixth age of the world. Jesus Christ, the eternal God and Son of the eternal Father, wishing to consecrate this world by his most merciful coming, being conceived of the Holy Ghost, and nine months since his conception having passed, in Bethlehem of Judah is born of the Virgin Mary, being made man, the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ according to the flesh. This is, in a sense, a very mysterious time of the year. We turn to look forward to many wonderful things, but we also have a strong sense of where we've been. We look back on our, on our last year. And, but let's remember in looking forward that we really must look all the way forward to the promises of heaven and the coming of the Lord, or perhaps of our own coming to the Lord in our own death and judgment. We hope and pray for many good and happy things in this coming year, but we must be resolved to accept all the things that come to us and desire them all according to God's will. 
God who knew us from before the creation of the universe and has destined us for an eternal glory. Uh, our wonderful God has no past or future but only an eternal present in which he embraces us with his divine will. In this looking back and looking forward mood I'm in, I have in mind that on the 30th of December, the well-known church musician and longtime pastor of St. Agnes Parish in St. Paul, Minnesota, Monsignor Richard Schuler, who died last spring, would have had his 87th birthday. For many years, as a parish priest, Monsignor strove to implement the liturgical documents of the church regarding the Novus Ordo. He wanted to do them, he wanted to implement them as they were written. His position was that the Novus Ordo, celebrated properly, and according to the Roman style, could be an effective form of prayer, especially when coupled with the flexibility the new documents provided for sacred music. And, of course, Monsignor Schuler was a great church musician. One of the fruits of Monsignor's work was the large number of vocations to the priesthood from that one parish. There were something like 30 first masses at St. Agnes in as many years. I don't think anywhere, anywhere in the world can boast such a record as that. Among the many things Monsignor Schuler defended during his decades as pastor of St. Agnes, uh, along with the use of Latin and Gregorian chant and so forth, was the preservation of the main altar without ever having set up an altar facing the people. I think this is one of the most important things uh, that Monsignor Schuler did all those years. He paid attention to what the documents of the church really said, and therefore he knew there was absolutely no obligation whatsoever to put up a freestanding altar or celebrate Mass facing the people, despite the enormous pressure brought to bear uh, by church officials and so-called experts, and sometimes pressure brought to bear directly on him. But certainly he stood in the face of all of the propaganda and misinformation that was being uh, spread around by the uh, liturgical apparatus in all those years. The issue of ad orientum worship uh, has now come very much back into discussion these days. Uh, good books and articles are being published far and wide. The blogosphere talks about it. Um, I could direct you, of course, to the writings of Joseph Ratzinger, which I have showcased in some of these other podcasts. Uh, but also, uh, there are uh, wonderful works, um, particularly uh, one I'd like to point you to by Father Michael Uwe Long, uh, published by Ignatius Press. But these new authors and new articles are standing really on the shoulders of some old liturgical warriors who really fought the fight during very difficult times. And I have in mind especially the posthumously published work of the great liturgist Klaus Gamber, for whom Joseph Ratzinger had so much respect. Uh, he even wrote an introduction to one of his posthumously published books. Gamber was really the one who 
pointed at all the, the emperors of the liturgical reform after the council and said that, that they had no clothes. And, of course, that pretty much uh, resulted in him being silenced. Uh, people wouldn't publish him very willingly because he wasn't going along just to get along. Uh, we might turn to uh, Father Gomber's work in uh, a book called, in English, The Reform of the Roman Liturgy because he talks about the altar and the orientation of Holy Mass at certain points, and we could pull out some of those experts, uh, excerpts and listen to them carefully. Page 53. At this point, we should know that the celebration of the Mass with the priest facing the people was not made mandatory in the new liturgical rite, although the Institutio Generalis Missalis recommends it. Page 77. We can say and convincingly demonstrate that neither in the Eastern nor the Western Church was there ever a celebration versus populum, rather, there was only the practice of turning towards the east while praying. Page 80 What in the early church and during the Middle Ages determined the position of the altar was that it faced east. To quote St. Augustine, When we rise to pray, we turn east, where heaven begins. And we do this not because God is there, as if he had moved away from the other directions on earth, but rather to help us remember to turn our minds towards a higher order, that is, to God. Page 92 Since there is no basis for it in liturgical history, nor theology, nor sociology, the celebration of the Mass versus Populum should be gradually phased out. Pages 142 to 143. How can anybody be against the altar facing the people since its use has been prescribed by the council and it has been established everywhere? One would look in vain for a statement in the Constitution and the Sacred Liturgy of the Second Vatican Council that said that Holy Mass is to be celebrated facing the people. Back in 1947, Pope Pius XII, in his encyclical Mediator Dei, pointed out that the person quote, who wants to change the altar into the old form of the mensa, the table, is going down the wrong road. Close quote. The celebration of the Mass versus Populum was not allowed until the Second Vatican Council, but many bishops quietly tolerated the practice, particularly during Masses celebrated specifically for young people. Page 151 But we want to quote from Father Josef Jungmann, the author of the well-known book Missarum Solemnia published shortly after the conclusion of the Second Vatican Council in the magazine The Pastor. The author writes, quote, 
The claim that the altar of the early church was always designed to celebrate facing the people, a claim made often and repeatedly, turns out to be nothing but a fairy tale. Page 175 Real change in the contemporary perception of the purpose of the Mass and the Eucharist will occur only when the table altars are removed and Mass is again celebrated at the high altar, when the purpose of the Mass is again seen as an act of adoration and glorification of God and of offering thanks for His blessings, for our salvation, and for the promise of the heavenly life to come, and as the mystical reenactment of the Lord's sacrifice on the cross. Page 179 The focus must forever be on God, not man. This has always meant that everyone turn towards him in prayer, rather than that the priest face the people. From this insight, we must draw the necessary conclusion and admit that the celebration versus populum is, in fact, an error. In the final analysis, celebration versus populum is a turning towards man and away from God. Just think, those things were written all before 1989, when Monsignor Gambert died. Uh, remember, his writings were gathered and posthumously published, and then eventually translated into English. Uh, and the, the dominant liturgical apparatus would have very little to do with him while he was alive, uh, even though he was one of the truly great liturgical scholars of his era. Of course, Joseph Ratzinger held him in high esteem. And uh, probably uh, Gamber influenced Ratzinger's uh, thinking, very much uh, influenced his thinking on ad orientem worship. But when uh, Monsignor Gamber's writings were published in English in 1993, Monsignor Schuler wrote about the book in the quarterly journal Sacred Music, for which he was the editor for many, many years. So let's listen to Monsignor Richard Schuler's views from back in 1993 as he reacts to Klaus Gamber's work on the Ad Orientem altar. Turned Around Altars by Monsignor Richard Schuler in Sacred Music, Summer 1993. Father Klaus Gamber, who is recently deceased, has written for many years about the liturgical reforms that followed on the Second Vatican Council. 
The reform of the liturgy has recently been translated from German into French and English, and has provoked considerable comment in the European press. One of the points considered by Father Gamber is the position of the altar with reference to the congregation. One of the most evident reforms following the council is the practice of having the priest face toward the congregation. Much of the propaganda that brought about the priest's change in position alleged that it was only a return to a custom of the early church. History and archaeology were both cited, but without true facts, as evidence in the claims. Without much study or questioning, priests and parishes across the country accepted the stories and tore out their altars, replacing them with tables of wood and blocks of stone that allowed the priest to face toward the congregation. The designs of the original architects, uh, the overall lines and focus of the church were set aside and thrown out. In most cases, the artistic results were bad and at best the new arrangement looked like a remodeled dress or suit. The destruction of the church and sanctuary was unfortunate and often costly. In some parts of the country, the damage done to the churches by the altar-bashing reformers was greater than what the vandals did to Spain or North Africa. But the greater evil was the damage done to the liturgical presence and actions of the priest, he was told to make eye contact with the people, to direct his words to them, to become the presider at the, the community assembly, the facilitator of the active participation of the congregation. The notion of the Mass as sacrifice was discouraged, while the idea of a common meal was promoted. The altar became the table, much like in the days of Archbishop Cranmer in England. Among those asked to comment on Father Gamber's book was Cardinal Ratzinger, who was interviewed in the Italian journal Il Sabato. He explained that there is no historical data, either in writing or from archaeology, that establishes the position of the altar in the early centuries as having been turned toward the people. To look at the people was not the question in the early church, but looking toward the east where Christ would appear in his second coming, the parousia was most important. Thus church buildings and the altars were oriented, faced to the east, so that the priest especially would see him on his arrival. If because of the contour of the land or some other obstacle the church could not be so located, then the priest, always looking toward the east, would have to stand behind the altar and face toward the people. That he was looking at the congregation was only accidental to the eastward position he took. St. Peter's Basilica in Rome is a good example of this, because the church could not have the usual west entrance because of the Vatican Hill. The Cardinal explains further that almost universal change to altars facing toward the people is not a decree of the Second Vatican Council nor was it impossible before the council to offer mass toward the people. A tradition of fifteen centuries of priests standing at the head of their congregations was swept away in a few years. That tradition admitted of exceptions. I, myself, probably had a record of celebrating mass in Latin facing the people more than any other priest in the country before the council. The church where I had weekend duty had such an altar in the crypt, 
and I offered Mass twice each Sunday for nearly ten years, all prior to 1963. The Cardinal was asked if the Church would revert to the ancient tradition practiced before the Council. He replied that there would not be a change at this time. He said that the people are far too confused now by so many changes so quickly introduced. But he did not say that it would not happen at a future date. Surely a great boost in restoring reverence to the celebration of the Mass would be given by a return. Father Jungmann, whose work on the history of the liturgy was in large part responsible for the introduction of the change, had second thoughts about the value of the change. The interesting aspect of the discussion brought about by Father Camber's book is that little by little the propaganda and false assertions invoked to bring about the liturgical reforms following the Council are now being exposed and found to be without truth or basis, historical, archaeological, or liturgical. The errors swallowed by the clergy and laity alike in the 60s included such lies as the elimination of Latin, the forbidding of choirs, tearing out of communion rails, statues, tabernacles, and vestments, all in the name of the council, or perhaps in the spirit of the council. Thank God the truth is beginning to reappear. Monsignor Schuller's comments back in 1993 remind us today that the man who is now Pope Benedict XVI has had his eye on the issue of ad orientem worship for a long time. I think we can look forward to some uh, good things from Pope Benedict about this issue. However, uh, I think he knows, uh, uh, because of his great prudence and insight, that abrupt changes can do damage, just as they did before, just as they did after the Council, when all those sudden changes were made that confused so many people. And so, in his vision for the Church, I think the Holy Father is going to implement his martial plan, as I call it, his martial plan for the Church, step by step, brick by brick, slowly but surely. The restriction of the older form of Mass with his motu proprio sumorum pontificum was one of the most important elements of that plan of his, uh, along with his change of the Master of Ceremonies. Now we're getting a more traditional liturgical style, and uh, it strikes me as very timely indeed. Younger people today, in fact, I really think most people today, with the exception of some of the aging liturgical hippies out there, are really hungry for a worship that brings us to God and orients us to God, something outside of ourselves, rather than closing the circle in on ourselves or, or constantly having to deal with you know, the priest as game show host uh, behind a table altar. I was struck very much by a comment made on my blog the other day. Someone much in favor of mass facing the people posed the question, why should we have to look at the priest's back during mass? And the commenter responded very well. Why should we have to look at the priest's face? And that, my friends, is it in a nutshell. None of this is about the priest. Holy Mass is not about the priest. It's about Almighty God. And so, celebration of Holy Mass ad orientem is 
I think one of the most important things that we can give to our Catholic people. I urge pastors of parishes out there who might be listening to this podcast to learn more about this issue if you really don't know about it, and then to teach your people about it. This is so very, very important. I must regrettably bring this to a close, lest we go too long. I'm very grateful for the wonderful support you've given uh, to me and to the blog, uh, WDTPRS.com, that's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com, and uh, also to the, for the wonderful donations and the feedback that you've sent to me uh, during the last year. Uh, looking back on our accomplishments together because I really do see it as a collaborative project. Um, I can only look forward to the many blessings uh, that we may all receive together in the future. And I pray for you abundant blessings from Almighty God during this new year of salvation 2008. Please pray for me as I will for you. Mm-hmm.